Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Out to Lunch with me, Jay Rayner. It's my shiny new podcast where I go out to lunch with someone really fascinating. We get out the menu, we choose a few things we like the look of, and we eat and we talk and we eat and we talk. Today, I'm dining with the brilliant American comedian Reginald D. Hunter. I heard the man say, this next comedian is from Georgia. And I was like, shit, I ain't got no jokes. Because up to that point, all I was was like an attitude and an accent. So we asked Reginald what it was he liked. He did give us two choices, one of which was Korean barbecue, but I couldn't get a quiet room in a Korean barbecue place. The other one was classic French. So I have brought him to Lescargo, which is officially the first restaurant in London, certainly since Roman times, to serve snails in the shell. They even had a snail farm in the basement, though these days that's where the kitchen is. It is a classic French restaurant in all the best ways. They do fish soup, they do confit du canard, and of course they do l'escargo. I love this place and I'm hoping Reginald will love it too. Mr. Hunter, <laughs> come on in. Hey man, I just, I feel, I feel compelled to call you Rainer J. You, you can call me whatever you like. Me. Rainer J, what's happening, baby? <laughs> Have a seat. Thank you for agreeing to come to lunch with me. Yeah, man. I was kind of curious, because you, when we sent you the details, you came back with two very specific food stuffs that you like. Mm-hmm. Korean barbecue and French. Um, and I was just curious as to how far where we are now is from where you would have eaten as a kid. Oh, <laughs> well, let's see. In the rural south, how many French restaurants did we have? Well, the- well, there, there was once a kind of kind of grand culture of French restaurants. There in some of the the old colonial towns. Sure, like you know coastal towns like Savannah. Yeah, and uh, up along South Carolina way. But um, we are we are far inland where I'm from. Right. Okay. And, and so yeah, it was steaks and chicken. Steaks and chicken. So this is a bit of a distance, right? <laughs> oh yeah, indeed, indeed. Okay. I'm, I'm partial to French food because of some of the sauces. I'm a sauce man. You're a sauce man. Yeah. Well, you've come to the right place because we are at Escargo. And they do do sauces. Yeah. You're actually slightly vibrating in your seat there. It takes those closest to me to tell you how much sauce means to me. Sauce means a lot. Yeah, yeah. This is George. Hey, hey George. Hey, from and this is Paolo. So we, we're being said by hey, two Paolo. people. Hey, Paolo. Hi, nice to meet you. And he looked like a Paolo, too, man. He looked like an authentic Paolo. He does, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. When we send out, you know, we say to people, dietary requirements. Mm. You sent back none. You didn't say, I'm allergic to anything, or I don't do anything, or I've never said, you know, it was... Everything. 
I'm not allergic to anything that I'm aware of. Well, let's find out. It could be fun. You know, <laughs> um, we haven't had anybody go into anaphylactic shock on microphone, but that could be uh, kind of interesting. Oh, okay. It's going to be one of those shows. Okay. No, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. We don't really want the guests no, to No, it's a running joke with my people that uh, a lot of things I do on British television, say, for instance, yeah. it always, if it's not a parent show, it involves putting me in some kind of awkwardness or weird danger. <laughs> Just, you know, like, Reg seems really calm and cool. Let's see how calm and cool he is in a room full of southern racists. <laughs> Reg is really calm and cool. Let's see how Reg handles being put on this very violent horse. <laughs> Reg then, is really but then calm. surely you say, do you say yes to these things? There's nothing to do with you know my, my character and nothing like that beyond the fact that if I'm paid to do a job, I'll do a job. And then plus, you know, my agent, you know, we have a partnership and sometimes she'll say, you want to do this? Or sometimes she'll say, man, you need to do this. So, you know. <laughs> that was brilliant. That was almost like a whinny of an angry horse. Um, right, listen, food. <laughs> yes, yes. So we are in Lescargo. Do you do snails? Uh, do you like them? Or if you don't like them, it's fine. Oh, no, I'm not going to participate in snails. All right, well, I'll participate in snails. Yeah, okay. So I just think it's important that one of us does snails, and I'm completely addicted to them, so... Oh, wow. That, that's fine. You know, Have so, you had them from here before? Yes. Okay. So, you, so it, these are these are upmarket quality snails? They're serious snails. Okay, then. Uh, I shall sample one of yours. You snails. can sample one of mine. Okay, let me see here. I'm going to go with boom, boom, boom. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the edge of my <laughs> seat. Yeah, the duck comfy. Duck comfy, duck. Okay. And would you like any size as well with your duck? Um... It comes with 50 pilots. The palm's down from one. Yeah, boy. <laughs> You're not going to do a starter? Okay, I'm going to try two starters then. Oh, you can do a starter, starter? Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. I'm going to go French onion and then lobster bisque. You're going to do two soups? Yeah. Which is uh, two soups. Do you ever remember the sketch that Victoria wouldn't? No. No. All right, I have to tell you, you're going to have to look up this sketch. It's Julie Walters playing a, a waitress... A very elderly waitress in a restaurant. She keeps saying, two soups. <laughs> um, there will be people listening who will know the two soups. Recipe. Okay, all right. I kind of sample their French onion. And I ain't never tried lobster bisque. And I'll have the six snails and the coq au vin. <laughs> so I'm going to go right back. You grew up in the South. Mm-hmm. You're one of how many siblings? Last of nine. Last of nine. Where does becoming an actor come from which was clearly your original plan because you went to rada i was was there any of that when you were a kid i watched television so much for years i mean i grew up on 70s television when you're a kid in the 70s and like people only paid attention to you when they paid attention to you so and my mom worked all the time and my dad was a a, a gallivanter and so i had a lot of time to watch television and so i was i was a dreamy kid too so since i was a dreamy kid and kind of you know absent-minded there came a point in, in, in college where my sister said, look, you've Captain Kirk, six million dollar man, just you walking around talking to yourself, being goofy. You got to do something with this. I had done plays before, but it was the first time I'd been cast in the lead. And it was the first time my mother came to see me. Ah. And my mother was not a fan of, oh, this was a waste of time pursuit on a fast track to hell. Because <laughs> it was not a proper job. It wasn't a proper job and it wasn't church related. Oh, I see. Okay. But you weren't particularly church related either, were you? I, I tried. Mean, I mean, you went... I tried, I tried, I tried. I, I, I went to two services on Sundays, and I tried to go to Bible study and stuff. I tried to tithe. But I just felt fraudulent because I could never speak in tongues. 
<laughs> did you try? Did you close your eyes and hope that the spirit was going to move you and, you, and, the, and the language would come to you? Or did you never go that far? I don't think I would have been open enough to speak in tongues. I found something distasteful about giving yourself over to the spirit like that, of losing control that way. How old were you when we're talking about now? Well, since 1980. Right, so I can work out you're, you're <laughs> My a couple sis- of years younger than me, so it would, you would have been sort of 10 to I would have been 10. 10 to when I was 10, um, my second oldest sister became born-again Christian, and then she converted my youngest sister. And Did she have a knock on your door as well, or were you just oh, not uh, up for it? Oh, I, I got swept up in the orbit. I mean, do you believe? Are you... Are you- a Christian, or is, it, or is this just a part of your culture that's so deeply embedded in who you are and your identity that it's Im- impossible to ignore? We haven't even eaten a first course, and I'm going oh, straight oh. to do you believe in God. That's <laughs> 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 quite full on. But I have to say, you, pa- you paused much longer than... So go on, I'm curious. I don't know that God exists, mm. but I know for a fact that Christians do. And they have been, for, for a millennia or more, interpreting and enacting the will of God, often with great achievement and consequence. So, yeah, I believe in Christians. Is that partly because to say otherwise would be disloyal to your two sisters who are clearly were very important in your life? I know that everyone has something that they believe in. And, and I know whether it's paganism or witchcraft or Christianity, I know all of it requires faith. <laughs> but So that's quite an intense cultural background, Hey, man, we're just going to be what we are, man. So, yeah, before we hit our first course, we're talking about religion and God. <laughs> yeah, let's roll with it. <laughs> Two soups. All right. Please be careful. The soups are very hot. Snails as well. I think these. this is one of the prettiest things. So it's called Escargo for a reason mm-hmm. because they do snails and they should be under enough garlic butter so that you should really only hang out with a very close friend thereafter, at least, <laughs> at least one who knows your nature. <laughs> um, and you have two copper-coloured... Yep. Soup bowls. I think you've got. That's the lobster bisque yeah. on your right, and that's the. You say bisque, lobster bisque, yeah. And these, I just love food with a utensil, yeah, with yeah. an accessory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to throw one your way, All and right. then you can decide. So the key is to keep your wrist loose. Have that. Thank you, sir. Is this your first snail? Yep. I feel like I'm taking a virginity. Ah! <laughs> 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 Are we down a snail? Yeah. Hang on, if it hasn't come out, it's still fine. Yeah. I'm digging the garlic buttery sauce. I just don't know if the snail itself is necessary. <laughs> God, I might be hooked on lobster bisque. That could be a, a really expensive addiction. Oh, my God. It's every great seafood sauce you've ever had, isn't it? God damn, it's like I'm trying not to say nothing bad on here. I just say, say bad things because it's a podcast. You can I swear to God, the first thing I put, when I put it in my mouth, my inner animal said, where this nigga been all my life? <laughs> my people back home, if they hear me say that, they're going to be so embarrassed. Like, what does he do that? Um, but they do it. Do they? Do you give me permission? Can I use the N-word? I hereby and Lay your hand upon me. <laughs> but no, it's a thing, and you know it is, and you've been here for long enough to know that the, that kind of conversation goes on. So you can put the word at the end of every single one of your play titles, and you know exactly what you're fucking doing, which is that you are getting right in everybody's face. When I first started doing the Edinburgh Festival and stuff like that, I was more interested in trying to make myself be comfortable at, at ease talking to audiences. So I was like, I'm going to find a way to talk in the vernacular that I grew up in or grew up around. It was more like, I'm going to talk the way I talk, and this is how I talk, and, I'm, and I claim it. And I, It was more of that. There wasn't any message or anything like that. 
There might not have been any social message, but you'd been in uh, Britain long enough by the time you did. You did your first Edinburgh Festival when? 2000? 2002. Right. To know what British culture was like. Mm-hmm. You must have known, however comfortable it made you feel, that it was going to make your audience feel slightly uncomfortable. It was more fun to do. And it was more fun to do because you can sustain a comedy performance and a career if you are in, in character of yourself mm. or in character of something that's easy for you to constantly play. And every year I go home, I, my brother is like, you know, I think it's, you've gone as far with that as you can. It's time to put that away. How, how much older than you is your brother? Uh, he's, he's, he's what? He's got about like 14 on me. All right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So he's in his 60s. Yeah. That's well, enough to be censorious. And he was, he was one of them dashiki wearing, you know, black power, you know, just. <laughs> so it's kind of difficult for him to pick up the paper every now and again. And see what Reg has been up to. <laughs> Reg is in the paper saying, nigga, this. <laughs> so, you know. Back in the US, the press has, has commented on you, on the, the language you use or not? No. In fact, <laughs> I can't recollect any American press commentary on me at all. <laughs> it's good to have a goal. Um, now, listen, I, I'm, I'm, I am jumping around here, but we, we went off on a slight tangent. You got a RADA, 97 to, mm-hmm. was it one year or three? It was, uh, it, was short, it was a summer program. I wanted to be accepted in a three-year program. The vice principal told me that I was old. For Rada. I was, what, 27, 28? Right. He says, you have the tools. He says, but I'm not sure what we can give you because you need the repetition of work. Now, he said this to me with his arm around my shoulder as he was escorting me out the door. <laughs> but <laughs> the, whether he meant it or not, it kept my, my sense of self enough to go, okay, well, I was good enough to be a Rada, but I need to go do something else. All right, so as you're working your way through two soups... I think, man, I've been so much, I've been so much in this bisque. I hadn't even messed with the French onion. I didn't even pay attention to this dude. Uh, and it's fully garnished, so it should. It's got a crouton and mm. gruyere, yeah. and onions across the top. I mean, it's you know they call it a soup, but if you put your spoon in that, it would stand up. Mm. I think. Mm-hmm. See, mm-hmm. that's that's soup as it should be, isn't it? You got to respect that. You got to respect. You got to respect that. So you walk out of mm. the doors of Rada. Mm. And what's the plan? There was no plan. I had a plane ticket to come back at a certain date, yeah. six months from when I arrived. Something in me said, don't go home yet. I got to have something to show for this adventure. And so I eventually just ambled around until I found a children's pantomime company. And they called. I sent my resume to a bunch of different theaters. And these were the only people that called back. And what parts were you playing? Long John Silver. And I was the wolf in Peter and the Wolf. <laughs> this seems like a reasonable, you know, not not a bad job I mean, for a jobbing actor. Well, I mean, you know, for somebody that was, what, 28, 29 and knew nothing about Britain. And this, and this company had toured Wales in the Midlands. And so it was like I'd never experienced, seen or really even thought about bleakness. And before I saw some of these landscapes, the first place I went to was real. Ooh. Yeah, and it was like that's that's where North I first Wales. that's where I first made the decision that I was going to try stand up at some point. Because, what? Because you went to real and uh, were immediately was, taken by the essential look, dark comedy of life. No, I was looking at the dark ocean and the bleakness of it, and just just like wow, man. So it's possible for a nigga to die. <laughs> <laughs> and since it's possible for a nigga to die, what might a nigga do just before all that 
So yeah. standing on the on, on the on the promenade at Rill, staring at the ink I black sea. At the ink black sea, and it was just it was like a it was like a pre-Raphaelite painting. It was ominous and it was huge and it was chilling. I don't think most people's response to staring at mortality in the shape of the sea off North Wales would be. So what I really need to do is go and do some stand-up. I'm stand going to do some jokes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do some jokes. Ha! Do you remember the very first joke that you wrote that you thought to yourself, that's a bona fide joke and I can do that? It's a reductive question about stand-up comedy, but I'm always intrigued about the first thing. The first joke I wrote, I wrote where I came up with moments before I was introduced for my first gig. <laughs> that's slightly late in the day, don't you think? Did you have other material behind it? No. What uh, were you going to do? You were just going to get on the stage and talk shit? It had not occurred to me that I would need jokes. I heard the man say, this next comedian is from Georgia. And I was like, shit, I ain't got no jokes. Because up to that point, all I was was like an attitude and an accent. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you know, compared to certain people on the circuit, that's already an advantage. But, but when he said, here he is, Reginald D. Hunter... From the time he said Reginald D. Hunter to the time it took me to get up and walk to the stage, I composed a little something, and it got me a huge laugh. And what was it? The joke was something like, I'm living over here in Britain because I'm rebelling against my family. This is not something that they would do, come live over here. And it hasn't always worked out for me, rebelling against them, like the time when I joined the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> and I remember I was sitting there, and I was, I was talking to Michael Jackson, and... <laughs> <laughs> And uh, how long a slot did you have to do? Ten minutes. Okay, so you, you've got your first line, and it's funny. Yep. And it was uh, funny on that, a it was funny on a Tuesday night in a pub function room that holds like five hundred, but had like thirty people in, and everybody else had been like kind of northern white and boring. So the conditions were right for me to come in and just be different. Okay, if you get them in the first thirty seconds, which is what you did, you have one. Yep. But I'm just intrigued. What the hell else did you talk about for the next nine and a half I minutes? I do not remember. <laughs> but I came off of that stage and the man that ran the gig, he said, I don't normally do this, but here. And he handed me 10 quid. I was so broke. <laughs> and I took that 10 quid and I stopped at the petrol station on the way home. And I filled up on candy bars and crisps. I think I can be pretty good at this. By the time I did my third gig... A few weeks later, I had my first semblance of a written set. So, did it take off, you know, being a stand-up, did it take off really quickly for you? I was a working job in comedian. I didn't start noticing any imposing fame until around 2009, 2010. From the get-go, I was working all the time, and that was success for me. <laughs> How many gigs were you doing? Were you one of those who, who goes from gig to gig on the same night? If, whenever possible. I was taught that that was the way you get better. Do you write all your material, or is every night different? I mean, I, I don't have a team of writers. No, no, no. <laughs> I, don't, I don't even have a writer. <laughs> I am it. Do you physically write? I mean, do you yeah. actually sit there and... That's fingers typing on a keyboard. Well, it took me forever. I still have, like, notebooks. I make a lot of set lists. Oh, main courses are heading our way. Oh, OK. They look very... Oh, I've got a piece of cast ironware. That's always intriguing. Isn't it? Yeah. And another little one. <sighs> Oh, that's the Dauphin was. Ah, Dauphin was. And the coffee. Oh, that's that's Cocova. Oh, man, that's pretty. That's Cocova. Okay. 
which should be the origin of it was that it was called the cock because it was the old cockerel that you would need to cook down and down and down after it had done its time, you know, mm-hmm. fertilizing the other the hens, and it was of <laughs> no good. The and then you would you would kill the cockerel because its time was done, and then you braise it down in red wine. And then the modern way it's done is that you actually add in the lardons, the bacon bits, and the pearl onions and the mushrooms at the end, but the sauce is pretty deep. And then there's that... Is that like mashed potato that you ever knew as a kid? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's pretty mashed potato. Yeah, it's all right. Yeah, it's yeah. Oh, man. I'm all, I'm all about to cherish. Very understated sauce. Um, <laughs> well, against the lobster beast, maybe. <laughs> I guess so. It's just, uh, yeah, I don't know if after the lobster beast, I don't know if this sauce wants to be taken seriously. I don't know. Well, I'll try and take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Who were you being, and who are you being when you're on stage, when you're a comedian? Is there a character that's not quite you, but is you? Or Well, this current edition of Reginald D. Hunter is kind of curious to see about, about that myself. I've been practicing in preview for the last week and a half, two weeks. Where have you been doing that? In front of audiences? or? Mm-hmm. In fact, this last week, I've been doing places that uh, traditionally conservative voting, UKIP areas. So this has been my British Crackerville UK tour <laughs> so far. Where have you been? Hampshire, Huntington. Oh, wow. Uh, Margate. Yeah. <laughs> How's the material going down? My agent was a genius with this one. You know, she, she, she put me in a week of trying out in front of people who perhaps would not be predisposed to care for me or my kind of humor. And it's gone pretty well. So when I get in front of some people who really like me, I should be pretty good, you know? This will actually drop, go online, when you're sort of just out on tour. So what what is this show about? It is still yet evolving. Is it? You know, I'm going to let other people decide what the show is about. It's still a very organic thing. I feel like I just got my mic back as a stand-up. I feel like I have... Like I, when did you, what, do you think there was a recent period when you'd lost it? I was in a bad mood for about six, seven years. I was all technique and sound. I wasn't taking chances. I just recently grew my balls back, I think. Let's be honest, over the past six or seven years, real fame has kicked in for you. People know who Reginald D. Hunter is. I'm sure you get stopped on the street and all that sort of stuff all the time. Can that actually be problematic for a comedian to carry on being edgy, difficult, in your face? In the sense that before fame, you can catch everybody by surprise. Yeah. It's like an athlete when you first join sports league. You might set the league on fire that first year until everybody gets tape on you. <laughs> and then after a while, it's your sophomore time through the, through the league when everybody's made their adjustment to you. You'll either make a, your new adjustment to them or you'll be going home. You think you've got your, um, you know, the classic term is mojo. You, you're back on it. She's ready, Jim. Is she? <laughs> Make it so. Um, <laughs> engage. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. One of the things that is said about you is that you enjoy confrontation. You rolled your eyes, for the record. Let it be recorded that Red rolled his eyes at that. Do you not? No. I didn't know I was controversial until white British folks started telling me I was in newspapers. Nobody told me that any of the rest of my life. And trust me, my views up against the people that are personally in my life, like my family and my girlfriends and stuff... My stuff ain't nearly as controversial as them. Mine just has more jokes and presentation. British people find anybody controversial. Middle class people do. They find anybody controversial who doesn't believe what they already believe. That's all I know. But there's no point being bland and not actually having an opinion that's worth hearing. Well, nobody pays to see conformists. No. (laughs) If people are not paying to see you be a conformist... The best way to not be a conformist is to touch as much of your real inner self because that's where your true originality is and your true quirks and screwed upness. You got to touch on some of it, not exclusively, but you got to dip into that well sometime. You know, so I, is this a, as an alternative to doing therapy? I never thought of stand up as therapy, probably for years while it was therapeutic for me. But then I did go through a period where I knew I needed to get well again mentally. And, but I knew I had these dates coming up, and I knew I had people relying on me, and so. So were you in an actual depression? You oh, proper. Oh man, I, down I, I was black I, dog. Down. I was hurt. Death. I was grieving, and um, and I didn't have any outlets. Well, I had the sense that I was expected to be this calm, cool, dry talking guy who had no needs, <laughs> and so I felt trapped by that. And then when I would go back home to my family then that's a whole other ride because I'm still the ninth of nine children and we believe in hierarchy. So it's like I am the least ranking member of of the family. And so it's like my sisters can look at me and go, get up and go get some milk and I got to go do it. And that's that's all right. It's just... And your mum are gone. You know, for everything you've said about your relationship with your mother, that it was a complicated and difficult one. It probably would have been 90% less complicated if she had hit me slightly less. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, you know. I actually think it was partly generational. Like, my mama grew up in in, uh, the the Depression-era South in the 30s, and they didn't believe in timeouts and emotional hugs and withholding affection. And so here I come. I'm a child of the 70s, and I'm being pumped with, you know, 70s television. Children's television was like, caring is cool. And it was producing children that were more sensitive and stuff. And my mama couldn't make sense of me, my sensitivities. And plus, she was worried about dying because she was 42 when I was born. She smoked two packs a day. And niggas in her fa- from her side of the family, they didn't get past 50 very often. So when I came along, she was like, oh, I don't know how much this time. This is another child I've got to see into adulthood. And I don't know how much time I have. So sometimes she, she would just get frustrated and she'd be like, I need you to start picking up things the first time I say it, Reggie. And I just wasn't that kid. I was just, okay. In in some ways, you've been quite forgiving of her since. My mama beat us, but it was, and it could be excessive. 
she never beat us because she was in a bad mood or she was mad with daddy and she couldn't tell. Whenever she beat us, it was because we had crossed the line she had clearly previously established. So That's not an excuse. It wasn't abuse because it wasn't random and just because she was working something off. Right. It was when she. It was when you broke a rule. The punishment might have been excessive, but the goalpost did not change from day to day based on how she felt. And if your British liberalism can't help you see that, then man, you need to do some nighttime hanging out. And I'm not, no, I see that. But what I'm curious about. No, I, t- I totally understand the, the the reference points. I'm just curious as to whether, while you forgive her and you understand that, you wonder whether it didn't, in the long term, do you a bit of screw you up a bit. Well, I know there's as a result of her lavish and extravagant beatings and tongue lashings, mm. bad reviews don't faze me. <laughs> well, that's obviously a good thing for a stand-up comic. And I didn't decide to forgive her. Mm. I love for each other. She didn't do those things because she didn't love me. She did those things because she came from a generation that did not always know how to love well. Right. That's all. There's a difference. <laughs> do you read your reviews, then? Hardly ever. Right. They get read to me sometime when there's a problem. Uh, <laughs> I'll be in my room and my assistant come in and go, uh, you might need to hear this one. <laughs> your assistant got a really low voice. Um, <laughs> everything that I put in my mouth is delicious. And it's been, it's been a while since I've been able to say that in Britain. Seriously? <laughs> come on, oh, you're, you're, you're a man who likes his food. You know there's good food in this country. I know it can be found, but, <laughs> but I know it has to be found. Okay. <laughs> it has to be sought out. Okay. Um, excuse me, sir. Can I trouble you for a tasty beverage? Yeah. Whatever you want. Is it possible that I could get a fine Bordeaux? Sure. No problem at all. Would you like a small glass or a large glass or a bottle? Uh, uh, large glass. Sure. I'll watch. I've got a piano lesson. You, you teach. No, no, no. I'm I'm being taught. Oh, is that I, right? I, I have I, I play jazz piano and I have. Oh. Okay. Um, I don't know if you saw at the top of this menu. This really got me quite excited. At Lescargo, they always put an event of the day mm. on the top, and today is Duke Ellington's 120th birthday. Oh wow! Which makes me very happy because I'm a big Duke Ellington. I like to do one of um, a handful. I think of one of America's greatest composers. Period. Oh yeah, yeah no, I'd, I'd give him that. Oh. Um, I would absolutely give him that. Him and working with Billy Strayhorn, just the dogs in every way. It's a fine glass of uh, Bordeaux has turned up in front of you. Yes, it has. Which one is it? Mm. Oh, yeah. I don't know what that means. I mean, I just made it sound like I knew about red wine, which mm. I absolutely don't. Is it all right? It is good. It's it good. well good. I'll tell you what, if we choose a dessert... I'm not really a big dessert man, so let me see what they're doing here. What do you mean about Britain not having good food easy to find? That's the really important question in my mind. Dude, this! Reg! Is this a real question? <laughs> I mean, are you really... I'm really this? asking you this question. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I, I'm absolutely certain that in real, on the promenade, you're not going to find a great restaurant. Unless you're listening from real and there's a restaurant I've missed, in which case I'll be along shortly to have a look. You live in London. London's yes. got great restaurants. But I travel Britain. Okay. So yeah, I eat in the north, I eat in Devon, I eat in, I, yeah. And I also know it's like to try and get anything decent in a lot of these places after 10 at night during the week. So I'm astonished at your astonishment. 
I can't actually argue with that because I, I do. I, 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 I do I, a, a small way. I do what you do. I do one man shows and the the battle for dinner after a show because you don't want to eat before because you'll be yep, sluggish yep. and tired. And then uh, the number of charcuterie boards I've had in country pubs. Oh. And just a selection of sandwiches, and just and then when you want some soup, it's hard to get some soup in this motherfucker. And and and, and people are lazy about it. It's always carrot and coriander or something you can just throw together. So I've said it many times before. In other parts of the world, you have yet to overhear somebody say, "Hey, honey, let's eat British tonight." You just never hear that. <laughs> oh, you chose the tartar citron, then I'll choose the creme brulee. Sure, I think that has to be done. <laughs> Look, all right. So I will. I will acknowledge that you know. When you're on the road, there is something dismal about turning up at a Holiday Inn Express. Magnanimous. Big of you. Go ahead. I know. It is. It is. <laughs> but roughly, which part of town do you live in? Uh, East London. East London. Um, not far from Shoreditch and Spitalfields no, and no, all of those? No, 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 no. There, there are good restaurants. In that cluster, there are some good restaurants. And if you're in that area of London yeah. where you can be bothered to be during that, those times, yes, you can find some fine meals. But generally, in Britain, as I was speaking, yeah, you know, and just, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, man. I wish I had, I wish I had said it different because it seemed to have affected no, no, you emotionally. I'm fine. I'm fine. I, <laughs> no, do you know what it is? Because, so I write the restaurant column for the Observer every week, mm-hmm. and I try to get out of town as much as possible because people accuse me of being a London-centric critic, and actually, mm-hmm. I'm on the road. I'm fifty, at least fifty percent of my re- reviews are out London, and I find them. I do find these places that are worth going to, and if you'd like to send over your uh, touring uh, program, I'll write down a restaurant next to each one for you. Am I see your showtime seven thirty or eight o'clock? Eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. So you're down by ten, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Right, which means you do need a table at ten fifty. Oh no, you're screwed. Yep, you're screwed. You're on the road. Uh, it's it's roughly April, May now, um, mm-hmm. and presumably it's this show that you're taking into Edinburgh. No, I'm doing a different one. Oh, really? Yeah. This the, my, my tour show is yeah. called uh, Facing the Beast. My Edinburgh show is called The Brand New Full Throated Adventures of Reginald D. Hunter. So there are many beasts. Oh yes, I talk about the social media beast some. Uh, I mention my personal beast. Um, but I also talk about this this big national beast that we've... Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's a very beasty world right now. Very beasty. It is very beasty. Very beasty. And beastly. Yeah, in yeah. every way. What are your personal beasts, or have we been through all of them already? Well, you know, come on, man. I got to give reason, people reason to buy the ticket. Now. I can't, oh, of yeah. course. Yeah, I'm, saying, I'm not like a movie. I don't have to do trailers, you know. How have you taken to the business of being recognized on the street? I'm pretty gracious with it most of the time, because I, I like people, and... I know people can treat you way worse than recognizing you and wanting to shake your hand. If I don't want to put up with nothing like that, I go home. And then I have some fun with it sometimes, because sometimes people come up and they say, aren't you, you? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm 50 Cent's older brother. I'm $5. <laughs> Do you get mistaken? I, I ask this of almost everybody on this. Do you get mistaken for one particular person in, in particular? First 10 years of my, 10, 15 years of my career, I was mistaken often for Lenny Henry, but the last five years I'm more. Christ alive, that's the most appalling thing going. But the last five years, more and more, Levi Roots. Well, at least Levi uh, has some dreads. There was a wrestler um, called Booker T. I used to always always get that and get Judy Dench a lot too. Yeah, I'm sure. sure That's that's because you keep wearing the trousers. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a signifier. Do you mind just moving your. Oh, sorry. Yep. Now that's pretty. 
Thank you. It's very, very pretty. And I've got the creme brulee. And because um, oh, apparently you don't do desserts, you said. I mean, I'm not. I, I, I do them. I'm, and when I do them, I do them in a bingy fashion. It's like I go through a period where it's like maybe a couple of weeks period where I just want something. And then after that, not the rest of the year. So a cake has turned up. So you've just had your 50th birthday. Yep. I mean, literally a month ago. Yep. First of all, how did you mark turning 50? I'll just break it through my creme brulee. I think I did a gig. Most of my birthdays in the last 20 years, I've been on stage somewhere. Do you not mark birthdays? I mean, obviously you're working. I, I, I'm, I'm not in the habit of doing it. I need to get better acquainted with it. My family didn't really do it. And well, that, it must have been all the admin. I mean, there were so many of you. Well, by the time I was coming along, everybody was adults. And then plus, my family, they, they seem to be sort of the conviction is marking your birthday each year is one of the things that helps you become apprehensive about becoming old. Now, where are you on that? 50, I think, is an interesting point. I turned 52 years ago. I feel like I've just attained the status of a freshman old man. Oh, what, you're in the, you're in the early stages I'm of being fresh, an old man? I'm a freshman, yeah, I'm a freshman old dude. All right. I, I, mean, you know, I made my peace with my mortality years ago, so I'm not surprised I'm going to die or nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's always worth working out, isn't it? <laughs> and talking in dates and decades, this is also 20 years that you've been doing the stand-up thing in the UK. Does that surprise you, or is that just part of life? I'm surprised that I've done anything that long. <laughs> I, honestly. My, my, my spoon fell off the plate in, in <laughs> shock and surprise at that. I'm surprised that I found something that I love doing. My mother used to say, and with justification, that I was the laziest thing God put in a leather shoe. But for whatever reason... Stand-up comedy makes me get out of bed. It makes me get out of bed often well before I have to get out of bed. Sometimes it makes me wake up in the middle of the night and just start writing things down. Or sometimes it makes me go and step to a person or into a situation that I'm completely unfamiliar with because I need something new to be said, happen, or be around me. Stand-up comedy was the first thing that I was good at, that I had a knack for, that was legal. Excuse me just a second. Excuse me. George? George? Yes. Is it possible I could trouble you for a modest fat vodka? A vodka? Yeah. Nothing fancy, something slutty and working class. It's working class, okay. Yes. Sure, nice? No. <laughs> There's been a thing recently in London. We won't talk about the rest of the country because we know how you feel. Um, <laughs> obviously, not, I, don't, I don't share this thing. This is just Reginald yeah, yeah, yeah. thing. To kind of raise. A lot of the food of the South, fried chicken, American barbecue, mac and cheese, to, to the status of hipster item. Have you tried any of this stuff? And if so, what do you think? I, I'm, I'm very impressed. Real talk, impressed with uh, the evolution of handling the meats. Um, chicken is so-so, fried chicken is so-so. But the barbecue rib thing, I think British folk got a real good handle on that. Are you saying we're okay at U.S. barbecue? I think I think you're far better at that than you are the macaroni and cheese and the fried chicken. Okay, well that's good to know. Mm -hmm. There is your white spirit, yeah, yeah. but it's in a crystal cut goblet. So my father used to make moonshine. He used to sell it. It's also typical this time that we bring you a petty horse. As we just discovered, it's your birthday. Well, <laughs> mum. <laughs> I'm not going to sing because I'm a terrible singer. But. Oh, man. Thank you, man. <laughs> so this is a plate with a couple of macaron, a couple of um, madeleine and some chocolates and the words, happy 50th birthday. 
In somebody's handwriting. We're running out of chocolate. And, yeah. I, and this is not being anything other than truthful. This is the most anybody made out of my 50th <laughs> And even this, for my for my taste, is it feels a bit are you, are you, extravagant. It's just a bit showing, <laughs> a bit overly emotional. Reg, you want to blow the candle out? <laughs> I want this moment to last. <laughs> I don't get this often. <laughs> oh, God, my phone battery is shutting down. Oh man, it's as if the fates do not want me to be happy with my birthday. I will, I will text you the picture of, uh, okay. of you. Now, can you just blow the fucker out? <laughs> Ooh, Mr. J. Rayner, I didn't know you talked to guests. I can talk dirty. <laughs> so listen, you're about to go on tour. Mm. Do you relish that moment? Or do I, you do think- now, I do now. During the dark period, when I knew I wasn't good, certainly I knew that I was not threatening greatness. <laughs> It was hard to go on stage. For me, when I've been depressed, depression is when you lose trust of your judgment. Yeah. I had some personal things that happened that caused me to lose trust of my personal judgment. And then it started making me, made me start to wonder, well, shit, maybe these jokes ain't funny. Maybe just British people are very polite. It start messing with your head. But that storm has passed, and I'm actually curious and eager to see how good I'm going to be. I know I'm going to be better than when I was. I just don't know by how much. And so I, I'm, that's where I am with it. Buy a ticket to see Reginald D. Hunter. He's definitely going to be funnier than he was. Better than he was before. <laughs> Listen, He was you. a man that was barely alive. We can rebuild him. <laughs> thank you for letting me take you out to lunch. It's been thank- a huge pleasure. You know what? I'm going to have to start letting like big, nice white men take me out to lunch more often. Well, I think you should. You know, we're, <laughs> we're, not, we're not always a, a, an irritation or a threat. Okay, then. I mean, hey, I mean, if, if it's going to be like this, maybe I will let one of y'all clip my butt. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you could try. I, I understand y'all, you know, y'all do a lot of stuff like this to try and get in a person's pants. So yeah, this is exactly, okay, this so has I'm, been one long foreplay. <laughs> I uh, got my eye on you, Rainer. Have you? <laughs> I won't lie, I think Reginald D. Hunter and I have become friends, proper friends. That was really, really good. I hope you enjoyed it too, as much as I did. Um, If you want to get more episodes, find them wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us. We love, well, we love five stars most of all. We'll settle for four. Um, And do subscribe and that way the podcast will turn up in your podcast feed the moment it drops. Out to Lunch was a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. It was brought to you by Josh Gibbs, Hester Kant, Selena Ream, Robert Abel, Darby Doris and Steve Ackerman. The music was arranged and played by me, Jay Rayner on piano and Robert Rickenberg on bass. Next time, Grayson Perry. I've got my reply. Oh, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, Grayson, you can't get that. Get away with that. <laughs>